I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Antibody discovery is a long, costly, and complex process. Lab Genius is reinventing that process by using its platform technology that combines AI with robotic systems capable of designing, conducting, and learning from its own experiments. Its platform not only has the potential to accelerate the drug discovery process, but can generate high-performing molecules that likely would not have been found through conventional discovery methods. We spoke to James Field, founder and CEO of Lab Genius, about the company's use of generative AI to discover new therapeutic antibodies, its initial focus on immunotherapies, and why he thinks the data the company is generating to train its AI system is a significant point of differentiation. James, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on the show. We're going to talk about AI, drug discovery, and how Lab Genius is using the technology to do antibody discovery. Let's start with the world that Lab Genius is focused on. Why focus on antibodies, say, as opposed to small molecule drugs or other modalities? It's a really great question. So, yeah, as you know, the business sits at this really interesting interface between biology and technology and the mission of the company is to to accelerate the discovery of novel uniquely powerful antibodies and i'm a protein engineer by training so i did that at, at masters and phd level but you know i think antibodies are a really interesting substrate for machine learning and artificial intelligence for several reasons i think the first piece here is these are exceptionally programmable molecules and really this is a function of the advent of Everything, everything that we've seen happening in the world of, of synthetic biology. It's now really easy to read and write DNA. So if you want to cook up a new antibody, it's a very, very simple process. The second piece is, is that these molecules are, are highly modular. So that means that we really can start to recombine different antibody units to create molecules with really, really quite complex mechanisms of action. So we'd think we're talking now not just about molecules that may bind to a target, uh, but will have really sophisticated uh, uh, properties. And, and you can start to think about this as programming logic uh, into, uh, in, into these molecules, just in the way that logic gates started to, to, to really underpin uh, a, a lot of the, the, the breakthroughs in uh, computer science. But we're looking at the same sort of thing happening in the, in the world of antibody engineering now. And the last piece, the last, the last reason uh, is, is that by working in the area of antibody engineering, you really get the opportunity to pick from uh, evolution's palette. So you can take all of the amazing uh, molecules and, and, and components that have, have really arisen through the, the process of evolution and start to, to recombine those. So that's why antibody is, antibodies as a format, as a modality, is particularly amenable um, to machine learning. But the flip side of it is uh, there also has to be a problem that needs to be solved. 
Uh, and what we certainly see is for, for complex antibody therapeutics that have these quite sophisticated mechanisms of action, these molecules are really hard to optimize across multiple different properties in parallel. And that's a problem that machine learning really has, a, has an opportunity to solve. Would you say AI is enabling us to do something with regards to antibody discovery that couldn't have been done through traditional means, or is this simply allowing it to be done faster and cheaper? That's a great question. And, and often over the lunch table here at uh, Lab Genius, you can hear the same conversation being uh, played out. The way in which we see any uh, antibody engineering challenge uh, whenever we start a program is somewhere in this theoretical space that we call design space, the molecule with that right blend of properties exists. It's just a question of, of how do you find it? Now, with conventional methods, the real challenge there is you're often limited to searching a very, very small area of that design space. Um, and the impact of that is it gives you a fairly low probability of finding the molecule with the right blend of properties that you need. So you can run a program and you may never end up uh, finding a molecule with the right properties. The beauty of the approach that we're taking uh, is that by modeling very large areas of design space, we can systematically search through it and let the data drive us through uh, that exploration of, of the design space. And what you end up finding um, is often very, very high performing molecules, often with very non-intuitive designs. So I would say that the process and the approach that we're taking and the application of machine learning to antibody engineering gives you molecules that you just wouldn't have found using conventional methods. But maybe more interestingly, it creates or turns a process that historically has been quite stochastic and artisanal into something that now is highly systematic. You want to further refine the properties of the molecule, you just run another cycle of an active learning process. And I think that's a big game changer here. And really part of this wave that we see of the industrialization of the antibody discovery process. What would you say distinguishes lab genius from others applying AI to drug discovery, which is becoming rather ubiquitous? You're right in the sense that the, the application of machine learning and AI to the world of drug discovery Wow, there has been such an explosion in this space over the last uh, the last few years. Um, I think Lab Genius has a particularly interesting positioning in in, in this uh, uh, in this arena, in the sense that you see a lot of groups applying machine learning to modeling protein structure. You see a lot of groups using machine learning to model protein protein interactions. Lab Genius is a little bit different. Um, our focus is on the application of machine learning uh, for modeling disease relevant functional cell based assays. Um, and there are a few ingredients here that, that really enables us to, to do this. But let me start why, by saying a little bit why I think that's so important. So I think a challenge of, of, of machine learning is, is um, often people, the first thing people think is, where's the data set that I can currently use? Um, and they might go to a publicly available data set uh, for some property or, or, or another. But most of the really, really interesting questions um, in, in, in protein engineering uh, really need bespoke data sets generated for them. And, and the reason for that is because the public data sets don't, simply don't exist. So the infrastructure that we set up here at Lab Genius is one where we've brought together a lot of software engineering and automation and synthetic biology uh, in, or, in order to generate um, uh, an ML-grade data stream, as we call it, uh, where we can run functional screens, these disease-relevant cell-based assays at very, very high throughput. And then that becomes the substrate uh, on which we use to, to train our models and ultimately power our active learning process. So you can think of LabGenius as, as really, again, 
taking something that creates a lot of therapeutic value, these disease-relevant functional cell-based assays, combining it with a lot of software engineering, automation, and synthetic biology to bring online this ML-grade data stream, and then using the combination of the two of those to solve these uh, what are currently intractable problems, so very, very hard protein engineering problems. Um, and I think that's what sets Lab, Lab Genius apart. How do you determine the, the targets or indications you're pursuing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think a challenge for a company like Lab Genius is where you've uh, made a big capital outlay to create a, uh, a, a platform that not only spans the world of uh, bits, but also spans the worlds of atoms, is that once you've created that ability to generate an ML-grade data stream, you have to be really mindful around the application area uh, into which you apply it. So I think a challenge, as I say, for a business like us is you have to be exceptionally focused. Uh, and the focus for Lab Genius is, is on these multi-specific, multivalent uh, uh, antibody therapeutics with quite complex mechanisms of action. For our own internal pipeline, we're applying that to the development of the novel immune cell engagers for the treatment of solid tumors. Um, but certainly in, in the context of some of our partner programs, uh, we've operated in areas outside that. Now, with respect to the, um, the target selection strategy, again, you know, that's a, that's a challenge that not only kind of takes into account um, some of the nuances of being a small biotech um, and, 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 and thinking about that in the context of the financing strategy uh, and, and also the application of the machine learning. So it's bringing those pieces together that then sets the, the target strategy. So as a protein engineering company, what we're, what we're certainly looking to do, especially this is the case for our first few molecules, um, is to work out how we manage that biological risk. And the way in which we do that is, is we look at, in the context of these immune cell engages, very well biologically validated targets but, but looking at targets for which the, um, the therapeutic potential of these targets is as yet unrealized uh, because of an issue or that can be solved with a protein engineering solution. So just to make that very, very concrete, um, for our immune cell engager pipeline, we're really looking here at targets that are differentially expressed on healthy and disease cells, uh, but the exploitation of them therapeutically has been limited by uh, on-target off-tumor effects. And then we're really driving the platform to create molecules that are able to distinguish between healthy and diseased cells with exquisite selectivity. And, and if I just kind of give you an example here, what we what we found with the platform is we're able to, um, through our discovery process, identify molecules with killing selectivities that are at least 400 times better uh, than clinical benchmarks. Um, uh, and, and that's not just optimizing them for, for killing selectivity, but crucially co-optimizing them for that in conjunction with other key properties like developability and activity. And that's really where I think the machine learning comes into its own when you're trying to co-optimize these molecules across multiple different properties in parallel. Do you screen, do you begin with a screen of a, a library of antibodies? Do you create your own antibodies to screen? What's the starting point? Yeah, we, we, we divide the um, antibody discovery process into two distinct phases. So there's the first phase, which is the lead discovery phase. And really the, the goal of that is to generate really diverse panels of parts. And then the second stage is the lead optimization phase. And in the lead optimization phase, we're really using um, the active learning process to identify the best multivalent, multi-specific designs through, as I say, an active learning-led exploration of the of the design space. So if I kind of give you an example um, of a program and, and kind of talk you through the, the, the individual steps, most of the time we'll start off with a, with a target. And then 
against that target. And, and typically there we're looking at a, a tumor associated antigen that will be uh, heavily upregulated on a, on a disease cell, but also they're present on a subset of healthy cells. What we really need there is a diverse panel of binders. And we'll typically generate those through a combination of traditional methods like immunizations, phage displays, uh, and, and also deploying some newer generative methods as well. That gives us a pool of parts. Now, in contrast to a lot of traditional antibody discovery processes, we're not interested in just finding the tightest, tightest binders. For the, for the sorts of molecules that we're interested in making, the reason they're so hard to engineer is it's often the case that actually maybe like a looser binder might end up being uh, uh, the, the best um, subpart in an overall design. So what we really need is a diverse set of developable binders. And those are the sort of, you can think of those as the building blocks that then go into, into a larger molecule. And then the next step is a lead optimization phase. So we look at these this combinatorial mix of parts. And just to give you an example here, we can look at design spaces of over 250,000 T-cell engagers um, and start to, and that design space being described by the uh, combinatorial mix of all of the, the individual parts. And then we use the active learning process uh, to systematically explore that space. Now, just to compare that to what's done currently, if you're at a leading biotech or pharma company, you know, best case scenario, you're probably only testing 500 to 1,000 of these molecules. So what's really exciting is the sorts of approaches that we're taking here enable you to really get an order, at least an order of magnitude uh, improvement in the number of variants that you can evaluate within a specific period of time. And that's what makes this, this approach so powerful. Uh, what data are you able to generate? What's the ultimate goal in identifying antibodies? Is it specificity? Is it affinity? Are there other qualities you're you're seeking in a an ideal candidate? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it really speaks to the heart of what we're doing, which is trying to build a system that's capable of co-optimizing these molecules across multiple different properties in parallel. The, the, the kind of the, um, the traditional method of engineering these molecules is you'd optimize for one property. Let's say you'd optimize it for, for some measure of functionality, functionality, maybe its potency, efficacy, selectivity, et cetera. And then when you test it again, you found that accidentally you de-optimized for several other properties. And historically, that's what's caused... Uh, 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 long timelines in, the, in these discovery processes and ultimately made for uh, an, an inefficient setup. The goal here is to build computational models for each of those different properties. And once you have those models built, you're then able to optimize across them uh, in parallel. So practically what that means for the work that we do here at Lab Genius um, is we have a, lots of different measures of, of developability for these molecules and uh, additionally lots of different measures for, for functionality. And we run all of the high throughput experimentation on the, robot, on the robotic platform here, generate that data, build models for each of the properties. And then once we've built those models, we can optimize across them to find molecules that are high performing across all of those different properties in parallel. And ultimately what that gives us is these very diverse, highly optimized panels of molecules that then can be progressed into the later stages of the discovery process. At the end of the day, do you understand all of the variables and the data that the system is looking at? Or is it starting to learn and do things on, on its own that you may not be necessarily aware of? Yeah, it's, it's, this is, this is again a really fascinating, fascinating aspect of the, of the work and the process. So it's often the case that, um, 
certainly for our early programs, we we restricted the design space that we were searching it searching based on a number of biological hypotheses. So uh, in the case of the work that we're doing in T-cell engages, we made certain assumptions around uh, how wide the immune synapse should be and therefore how that should translate to the size of the molecule, et cetera. Um, certain constraints around uh, how far apart we should space the individual binding domains and what sort of ranges of affinities we should use as well. And then the results we were, saw were quite, were quite interesting in the sense that when we applied all of those biases, uh, we could run cycles of this process and find you know, find very poor molecules. Um, and it was only when we relaxed those biases and huh. said, you know what, we're, we're not going to assume anything. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look, um, try and reduce as many human biases as possible in this process. What then we actually started seeing is the emergence of very interesting um, molecules coming out of the process with very interesting topologies that you'd never have, have, have designed uh, rationally, uh, strange combinations of linker lengths and, and affinities. And really what this kind of hammers home is the fact that you have all of these different levers that you can pull from topology to affinity to epitope to linker length to valency. And the overall function of the molecule is really this complex interplay of all of those different levers. And the human brain just simply isn't wired to kind of pick that apart. Um, and that's why I think protein engineering as a discipline is so amenable to a, an approach like machine learning where actually the truest representation of those relationships uh, is, is best represented mathematically rather than linguistically. So of course, when we see an interesting design, you can't help but look at it and try and post-rationalize, ah, I think you know this molecule is working in the following way. But I think the reality is, is these are stories that we tell ourselves. Um, and I think that the, the, the truth is a lot more nuanced than that. That's so interesting to hear you say that. At some point, do you know if you're collecting the right data or if you're collecting extraneous data that may not help the identify the, the, the best molecules to pursue? Mm. There, there are two interesting aspects to that. I guess I'll talk first about, you know, collecting the right data. Um, a, a lot of the time to feed these models, we do need a fair amount of data. So, you know, at least a couple of hundred designs characterized per, per cycle that we do. And, you know, a challenge with that is it means that, that the assay is often a proxy of the actual property that you're really interested in. So when we're talking about developability, of course, what we're really interested in is when you really scale up this molecule um, and, and you're, you're producing at industrial levels, what kind of yields are you going to see? Uh, what are the kind of properties that you'll see associated with that molecule? Now, obviously, it's impractical to do that. So we're taking a proxy assay uh, and seeing how it performs at a, much, at a much lower scale. So whether we're creating the right data is really a function of, of, of the for each of those assay, how representative they are of the actual underlying biological function. But this is where we put a big effort uh, in focusing the platform towards running these disease-relevant cell-based assays. And certainly we've seen that, that um, uh, an area that I think you can really go wrong here is running maybe some of the easier, higher throughput assays like binding assays um, that might give you some interesting results and generate a lot of data, but it may not be that biologically relevant. So that, that's, I think, the first piece. So we, we put a strong evidence, a strong emphasis on ensuring that our assays are biologically relevant. Um, the, 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 the second piece is uh, how do you know how much is enough data? Um, and typically what, what we do there is, is at the start of any program, uh, we will demark an area of design space. And just by way of example, let's say 
we're developing a new T-cell engager. We say, we want to search in the space of 250,000 designs. We could never experimentally test all of those, but we'll test a subset, build a model, and that model should be predictive of that total area of design space. Now, the beauty of that approach is every time you feed the model more data, you can reduce the uncertainty of its predictions. So the, well, the beauty of this approach, as I say, is the model will tell you when it's had enough data uh, or, or whether it still has areas of high uncertainty. Um, so using that process, we, we were able to understand when we fed the model enough data. You're a synthetic biologist by training, so it was interesting to hear you at the time of this discussion talk in ways I would expect a synthetic biologist to speak. But to what extent are you able to build intelligence into these molecules to make them act or turn them on or turn them off by certain environments or external stimulus and really turn them into programmable therapies? Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you touched on that because, because when I look ahead to the future of antibody engineering, uh, really, this is the thing that always jumps into my mind. Um, we're just starting to hear now um, antibody engineers talk about this challenge of building logic into the, into the molecules. Uh, and of course, proteins are the nanoscale actuators of life. Um, they perform complex functions. Um, and really, I think we're just scratching the surface uh, in terms of what we can do with this type of this type of molecule. So my expectation is is over the next few years, we'll see more and more groups think about engineering antibodies um, uh, through the lens of building in uh, uh, the, these complex molecules that can conduct their own logic-based uh, functions. And just by way of example, um, and, and, and just to kind of underline how powerful uh, these functions could be, you could think of an antibody uh, uh, to, to just conduct one function. In. And if it was able to uh, accurately distinguish between healthy and disease cells based on differential cell surface profiles, uh, you can start to imagine the, the applications associated with that. So uh, if, this is a, you know, if this is a disease cell, then do X. And that could be you know, deliver a payload, pull in another immune cell to kill it, et cetera. So I, and, and I think now is the time in which we're seeing this step change in, in, in the approach uh, towards antibody engineering as there's this confluence of different disciplines together. So we're having synthetic biologists look at the problem in conjunction with computer scientists, automation engineers, uh, software engineers, et cetera. And I think it's at that confluence that we'll start to see some of the next major steps being taken forward in the field. I think a lot of the industry interest in AI is about accelerating drug development, cutting the cost. I think that would be reductive in the case of what you're doing with it. But have you been able to speed the process of preclinical development at all? Have you gotten to molecules faster than you otherwise would have? Is there cost savings from applying the technology in your case? There are certainly are. So I but I think probably the, the biggest lever that we have to, to create value here um, is to deliver molecules that are more highly optimized and therefore have a lower probability of failing in the downstream um, translation process. Because obviously the biggest challenge for us as, as practitioners within this industry is when these molecules fail at a late stage, uh, that's when the biggest financial impact uh, occurs. So certainly by just by having a more efficient process, you can deliver the same molecule faster. But the thing that excites me the most uh, is delivering more highly optimized molecules that in theory should 
have a higher probability uh, of reaching patients. And, and how much of that optimization happens in silico and how much of it becomes a more conventional drug development process? So certainly for the molecule optimization, um, we almost think of the work going on in the wet lab um, as an extension uh, of a computational process. And, and we kind of think of this through the lens of empirical computation, where you have hypothesis generation being generated in silico, and then that hypothesis testing uh, happening in the real world, and then the data obviously informing forming the underlying models. And it's through that tight integration of the wet lab and the dry lab that you can run that closed loop optimization process and ultimately deliver uh, these highly optimized molecules. Once you've got your panel, then that slots into the standard set of downstream activities um, associated with progressing these molecules uh, towards the clinic. My understanding is the system might also suggest to you the next experiment to do. Does it ever suggest surprising experiments? Absolutely, and and you know, I guess just to walk you through through an example, um, the the obviously the traditional way in which these uh, antibodies are designed is that at every stage of the process, you know, a human will pour over the results and maybe suggest tweaks to the molecule that may or may not improve it. Our process is entirely algorithmically driven. So the first stage in that process protein engineers will sit down with our data scientists. And as, they, as I say, they'll demark an, to demark an area of design space that, that they, they want to explore. Once that's been done, the whole process just runs itself. So in the first cycle, typically what you're doing is you're trying to uniformly sample that space. And then in the subsequent cycles, you're balancing the number of shots on goal that you have between exploring new areas of sequence space and exploiting certain design patterns that seem to be uh, yielding good results. Um, so, so this is a very different way of, of approaching the protein engineering challenge. And as I say, it's entire, after you set the initial design space, it's entirely algorithmically generated um, in terms of the subsequent sets of designs. And what that means practically uh, is the designs that come out at the end of the process um, uh, end up being molecules that you would never have designed as a human. And, and what's the, the business model? Is it to carry these molecules all the way through development? Are you partnering? Is it a, a combination of the two? Yeah, it's a combination of the two. And, and, and like, um, like many early stage biotechs, we run this hybrid business model where we're investing behind a pipeline of our own molecules whilst we're simultaneously uh, uh, seeking out partnerships that can expand the scope of the platform. And, and it's really through um, the, the latter set of activities that we hope to drive the expansion of the platform. So just by way of example, when we speak to partners, they'll look at our process and look at our results and say, this is fascinating. Can you, can you apply it to our specific modality of antibody therapeutic? And then it will be through those partnerships that, that we drive the expansion of the platform. Have you identified a lead program at this point? Yeah, so so we are progressing um, uh, one, one of our own lead programs. Um, and, and again, here, the, the big challenge for us as an early stage company has been selecting a target that obviously ourselves and the clinicians with whom we work have a lot of conviction over, but ensuring that we're not taking on too much biological risk, because ultimately LabGenius is a platform that's defined by the power of the uh, a company that's defined by the power of the platform and a mode of failure that obviously everyone in the business is aware of uh, is you can imagine that the platform performs performs perfectly well but it's the underlying biology of around an unproven target 
that, that ends up uh, resulting in, in the failure of that molecule. So we really, for our, that lead program, looking for a target that's exceptionally well biologically validated, uh, but there's a huge protein engineering problem that has to be solved around uh, uh, on target off tumor so are you focusing on solid tumors as the area for Lab Genius's own pipeline? That's correct. Yeah, that, that's the focus for us. There's a massive unmet need there. Um, and again, the, the issue of on-target off-tumor tox is, is a particular issue for solid tumors. So this, this has been a, a big challenge for immunotherapies, particularly. Any reason to believe you'll be successful where, where others haven't been? It's obviously a really tricky area, but obviously a, a really valuable one as well. And that feeds into this this challenge around around target target selection. So um, we, we, again, we don't want to be in a situation where um, there's some ex, some some broader problem uh, unrelated to to target choice that that, that limits the, the potential of the molecule. So really going for, for for at least for that first program, a very well validated target where uh, there is a, there is a molecule that seems to work quite well. Um, but it's plagued by this issue of on-target off-tumor tox, and that's the problem that clinicians really need solved. Um, so, yes, we're playing in the solid tumor space, which comes with its challenges, but we're trying to de-risk that as much as possible. So one of the challenges for a lot of early-stage biotechs that have a powerful platform and is both partnering and developing its own pipeline is, is both allocating resources appropriately and getting value out of the partnerships um, rather than just using up the funds they provide to do the, the work. Uh, how are you balancing those, those different demands? I think you summed it up really nicely there where a mode of failure here is you take on partnerships um, and they don't really provide any kind of long-term value for the business. And, and that's where when we look at the different partnership opportunities that we have on the table, They've really got to be driving the expansion of the platform. Um, and so the thing that gets me most excited about a partnership opportunity is where it could provide us the ability to go after a target that we would never have gone, gone after. It provides us the option to expand into, say, a new modality. Or alternatively, maybe the partnership brings us a lot of data that we can keep and retain uh, and then use that data to further refine our model and models and increase the probability of success for our own internal programs. At this point, I, I say most big farmers certainly, and, and a lot of smaller ones, have waded into the area of AI in some some respect. I, I still find talking to some old school drug developers that there's some skepticism about the value of AI and the hype versus the reality. Do you see these attitudes changing at all over the years in your discussions with potential partners? I think that they will change. But at the same time, I think a lot of the folks who are skeptics um, are quite justified in being skeptical. Uh, I think because there's been so much uh, interest in, in machine learning and artificial intelligence, we've seen the blanket application of these technologies to every single stage and every single problem within the drug discovery process. And if I'm being very honest with you, very candid. Uh, a lot of the problems in, in the, uh, the drug discovery process, uh, the existing solutions uh, are fit for purpose. And, it, and AI or machine learning, it's just a tool and it's not always the best tool. So my expectation is uh, we'll, this first wave, this first wave of practitioners applying these methods will quickly find out which are the problems that really need to be solved and which are the ones where the existing solutions are adequate. And then once the, uh, the really 
hard to solve high value problems uh, start to be solved with these methods, then I think the uh, the interest and, and, and the optimism behind uh, the technology will, will be warranted. Um, but some of the skepticism indeed that you see within the industry, I think is entirely, entirely warranted. And how is Lab Genius finance to date and how far will existing financing take you? Yeah, so we've been really mindful when it comes to building an investor base for the business. Um, uh, when I started out uh, with this company, what I was really mindful of is, is we wanted to build a, a platform that, that would be an enduring beating heart of the business for, for years to come. And that takes a certain certain breed of investor. So we've, we've managed to find and coalesce a group of investors who both bridge the world of technology, but also have significant exposure uh, into the world of biology as well. Um, and But not only are, are they able to kind of bridge these different domains, uh, but they also have very deep pockets as well. So so we've been well financed by uh, that investor base to date, which sort of spans mostly Europe and, and the US. Um, and certainly certainly we have their backing uh, in, in, in the financing rounds to come as well. James Field, founder and CEO of Lab Genius. James, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.